Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Got Mental Health Podcast. I am your co-host, Rachel Cove. I am a multi-passionate entrepreneur, author, artist, mother, and certified recovery coach. I'm your co-host, Arthur Mogilevsky, entrepreneur, girl dad, animal activist, and owner of AM Healthcare, a premier substance abuse and mental health treatment program. With the collective experience of 21 years working in the mental health field, we are excited to bring to you a safe and fun place to talk all things mental health. We will be interviewing experts, thought leaders, entrepreneurs, and professionals in the entertainment industry to better educate, inform, and inspire our community to have positive mental wealth. Welcome back, everybody, to the Got Mental Health Podcast. I am your co-host, Rachel Cove, along with my other co-host, Arthur Moleskiski. Mogolevsky, Rachel. Never going to change. Hopefully one day. We have in the studio Stephanie Horlick, who is a deputy district attorney at the Ventura County District Attorney's Office. Stephanie is assigned to the Family Protection Unit, where she prosecutes felony and misdemeanor domestic violence and child abuse cases. As a prosecutor, Stephanie advocates for victims of crime and holds dangerous offenders accountable for their actions. Stephanie is vice president of the Ventura County Prosecutors Association, an organization aimed to boost and enhance office morale and mental health. Stephanie was a student athlete in college. She played Division I and Division II soccer on scholarship. She obtained a bachelor's degree in philosophy, a master's degree in criminal justice, and a jury's doctor degree from California Western School of Law in San Diego. Stephanie is the daughter of Salvadorian immigrant parents, grew up in the San Fernando Valley, and is a beautiful wife and mother. Welcome to the podcast, Steph. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So how long have we known each other now? Is it 15 years? it's been about 13 years. I could cry, uh, and I'm probably going to, (laughs) I'm doing it right now, uh, for the amount of love that I have for you, for the history that we share with each other, as you were my captain in college soccer. And I am very eager to interview you on the show because I feel like you are an absolute leader in this world. And I think that your story and your message is going to inspire a lot of people that are listening to this to really just go after their dreams to go after any any big goal that they have and to do it no matter what and to i mean every day you inspire me and we talk every day about how you got to where you are today and so i wanted to bring you on here and just talk about your story uh so the first thing i want to go into is the story of your father because without your father, obviously you would not be here today. That is correct. Yes. And he reminded me of that this morning. Yes. And so I, I would love to share that story. Um, the story of my father is one that I heard many of times growing up. And as I'm remembering, remembering it now, there are some parts that stick out more than others. Uh, but it really is just a an inspiring story. Uh, So my dad grew up in El Salvador and uh, he had a big family. And when he was about 18 years old, the civil rights war in El El Salvador started. So this was around 1979. And uh, he was being recruited to fight against the government at that time. And my father did not believe in that. So he's out in the soccer field of all places, right? Soccer. And the and just 
the way that soccer meant so much to him and the way that it meant it means now so much to me is pretty poetic. Uh, but he's out on the soccer field. He's talking to a friend and his friend's telling him, hey, I'm going to go to the U.S. I'm not going to fight this war. People are going to die. We need to leave. So my dad went back home, told his mother and father, hey, I, I'm leaving. I'm going to go. I'm being recruited. I don't want to fight. I don't want to die. And his family was very supportive. He, uh, my dad reached out to his grandmother, and uh, she had some money, a bit of money saved up. Um, I didn't co- my dad didn't come from means or anything like that. They lived off the farm. Mm. Uh, so he reached out to his grandmother, and uh, his grandmother gave him believe it was about, at the time, say $250. And uh, so to make a big voyage on, you know, $250. So he reached out to his brother. His brother gave him another sum of money. It was nothing major, no more than $250. So let's say my dad traveled with about $500. Uh, so he began his his quest to the U.S. Um, he went and uh, paid for a passport, so a Salvadorian passport to enter into Mexico. And he went with his friend, the friend from soccer, And uh, they took a bus first from El Salvador to Guatemala, Guatemala to Mexico. And while in Mexico, uh, my father, my father recalls that um, immigration in Mexico at every turn wanted money from them or anyone making that quest to the U.S. So it was an easy grab, easy targets. Uh, So where are you going? Oh, we're, you know going to the border. Okay, it's going to cost you 50 bucks to get to the next spot, whatever it was. So my dad, you know, he had about $500. So he was, you know, he spent about 70 with the passport in El Salvador, 50 here, 50 here, it starts adding up. And so the story really takes a turn when he gets to Mexicali. And he gets to Mexicali. And he needs to take a bus to Tijuana. Okay, so it's the final stop. And at this point, he's traveling with four other Salvadorians, okay? And these are his friends. So they go to a hotel. um, They go to, they're in Mexicali. They're staying at a hotel. And uh, my dad recalls he goes into a restroom to change. He says he hasn't bathed. He hasn't showered. It's been about eight days. He goes to change his clothes. And while he's changing his clothes, he goes uh, his friends, his three other friends, go and buy tickets for the final bus. All right. So they come back, and my dad, you know, asked him, "Hey, uh, did you buy the tickets? Yeah, we bought tickets. Did you buy me one? No." And so my dad, at that point, felt somewhat betrayed. Right? Uh, well, why didn't you buy me a ticket? He was thinking. And so it's like, fine, I'll go see if I can go get one myself. And so he goes to to. Um, uh, you know, the bus stop, tries to purchase another ticket, and the guy tells him, um, there are no more tickets. That's it. There are no more tickets. But, you know, I'll do a solid because he wanted some money, right? Um, I'll do a solid. I'll sell you a, a ticket for the same price uh, that um, that everyone who's seated paid. Uh, you're just going to have to stand up in the bus. If that's okay with you, we'll sell, we'll sell you the ticket. So my dad said, all right, sell me the ticket. So he goes into this bus, and his friends also go in. His friends are seated, okay? And my dad, you know, he just uh, takes hold of the bar and is standing in this bus, and he's going. They're going. And all of a sudden, they get pulled over again by immigration, okay, in Mexico. Last stop before the U.S. Well, before Tijuana. 
and uh, immigration says, goes into the bus, everyone that's seated, come on out. So everyone that's seated, come on out, okay? So they put them in a corner, everyone that's seated. Then everyone that's standing also come on out, but you're gonna go in a separate corner, okay? My dad, terrified, didn't know what was going on, right? And at this point, he doesn't have a lot of money anymore. I mean, he's been paying, right? Paying his way through, through Mexico um, and through Central America. At some point, immigration tells everyone that was standing up, go back inside the bus, the bus leaves. Everyone that was seated, got deported. Wow. That, well, deported. Is, was there any way of finding out the reasoning behind that? They couldn't afford it. So they were, they were asking for money. My dad never found out how much money, but he did later find out that his friends were deported. So had he been seated like everyone else, that would have ended his journey. And I think my dad would have gone back to El Salvador and probably fought that fight. And I don't know that I would be here. I'm literally so. crying. Wow. That's amazing. Because if he didn't go change his shirt. He didn't, correct. Yeah, but I'm still right. curious why, why if you're standing, you can get back on the bus? I have no idea. And my dad does a- not know. He does not know. And he never knew. All he knew is that now he was alone. Wow. He was alone and he was lost. He didn't know, well, what now? The friends that were guiding me here, you know, yeah. and you're stronger in a pack. And all of a sudden his pack is gone. He's by himself. He's traveling to Tijuana and his friends are gone. So many storylines there. There's karma. There's, <laughs> there's just so many being at the right place at the right time. I mean, it's just... That's unbelievable. I mean, it, there's so many, you know, not to take away from your own personal story, but there's so many of these immigration stories where people have had to, you know, pay off somebody. We have family in Ukraine that had to pay off half the world to get out, right. you know, and, and it's it, it takes a toll on someone's life in a sense where it, from a mental standpoint and, and a, uh, a fortitude standpoint at that point, if you can survive through this. Totally. I mean, you can go through anything. Totally. I mean, I look at my dad now and he owns a house in Los Angeles County. He has his own business. He built a pool, Mm. which we all know is very expensive. Mm. And I remember not so long ago, he's floating in his pool in his house in the valley. And I'm a prosecutor and I ask him, dad, and he's telling this story to my husband, by the way, this the, the same story that I just told. And um, I asked him, Dad, did you ever think that back then that you would come to the U.S. and that your daughter would then become a prosecutor in this very country? And he's like, never, mm-hmm. never, not, he, not even, he couldn't even imagine something like that. But now that's his reality. And that's mm-hmm. the world he lives in. And so... It is inspiring. It's it is so a story. inspiring. So, <clears throat> so he, so he came. So he got. When did he get to Los Angeles? So he gets to. So from. So he's by himself on this bus. He gets to Tijuana. He goes to. Um, he stays at a hotel. 
He says at this point he probably has a hundred bucks to his name. He stays in the in this hotel. He finally gets to shower. He says that it's been you know eight days or whatever it's been. No shower, no change of clothes. Like he's he's no sleep. He mentioned no sleep. How did you not sleep? No, we did not sleep, Stephanie. You don't sleep. You you're scared. You're traveling. You're you're going somewhere, and so. Um, he gets to Tijuana, and then I'm sure you've heard the phrase of a coyote. Uh, so he finds coyotes, and um, he pays the coyotes to take them. And it's a group, he says, of about 35 people, and they cross on foot. Wow. Mm-hmm. And then a bus picks them up on the other side. They go to L.A., and then the rest is kind of history from there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then he meets your mom, and he has you. Correct. My parents met in in the valley, San Fernando Valley. Okay, so you met in they met in San Fernando Valley. They had you. They have a house. They have the furniture business, correct? Correct. So I really want to talk to you about one your ability to lead, but I want to because I I don't think your ability to lead couldn't have been developed without soccer and knowing your history. I agree. So talk to me about your relationship to soccer. Soccer. <laughs> it's funny. Uh, you know, my dad's story, as I'm telling it, is so inspiring and didn't make me tear up, right? I've heard it so many times, but soccer, it just means so much to me. Yeah. It has done, it has saved me in so many ways. It has been what I have leaned on, what I have leaned into. Uh, it's, it's built the person that I am that I am in so many ways. Uh, so I started playing soccer. It's very interesting, but uh, my dad had my younger uh, sibling, my brother, playing soccer at the age of four, and I was about seven at the time. And I was doing ballet and dance, and uh, I wanted a trophy. I really wanted a trophy, and I wasn't getting a trophy in ballet. It's just not what you get. And uh, my brother was. And so I told my dad, hey, I want a trophy. Like, I want to play soccer. And he's like, oh. And he kind of, you know, not in a, he, I think that in his world and where he came from, girls weren't playing soccer. So I don't think that it was a, it was something of you can't play soccer because you're a girl. It just never really occurred to him, oh, you should play soccer. You're a girl. You know what I mean? And so it was it was me that, um, you know, I said, Dad, I, I really want to play. And so my brother was playing in an all boys team. So he's like, well, you know, you can just play with the boys and see, you know, see how that goes. And so I played with boys until I was about 13. Same. And so, I mean, that really built you up. Boys can be. Well, I love I mean, beating them. Oh, yes. I mean, yeah. it took me a couple of years. I wasn't that great in the beginning. Um, and, and they let me know that I wasn't great at it. Uh, so talk about. Um, a challenge there, right? Starting to play with boys and you're the only girl and you know, they're good, they're solid. And this is at an early age. Um, so fighting for my position, fighting for my spot, it really is a theme in my life. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm here, I'm gonna do it. And I'm not that great right now, but just you watch. And sure enough, a couple years later, I was, you know, benching the boys. Mm-hmm. And um, at some point, you know, uh, when I was 13, I was recruited into uh, a travel team. And so I started playing travel ball after that with women. And I remember kicking and screaming and thinking, I can't play with girls. I I, I'm, I just can't do this. It's, you know, it's a different style of play. And um, but eventually 
I mean, it was great. And I, I, I still to this day have friends that I met back then when I was 13, 12, 13, um, and have probably my best of friends come from soccer. Um, so it's kind of how I started. And then it just took a life of its own once I played uh, travel ball and then I got into college. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I really wanted to talk with you about, because we, we, we talk all the time on the phone, and we talk a lot about how our athletes' mentality is something that we, like, we go after everything like it's a fucking soccer game and we go after everything with everything that we have, whether it's, I'm going to order this Starbucks and I'm going to get this latte and I'm going to, it's going to have honey in it. And you're going to, you're going to serve it to me. Like it's the best damn latte I've ever had. Right. And you go into court, right. And you, I, I'm, so how, so regarding like this athlete's mentality, because mm-hmm. I remember we interviewed uh, the head Pepperdine uh, female soccer coach on here, and we said that there is something different about the personality of someone who has played sports versus someone who hasn't played sports. I agree 100%. I mean, there is something I can sniff it out. Like you played a sport. There's something about you. And I think it's it's a lot of things. It's the discipline. It's the confidence. It's the I can do attitude. Uh, but but I agree. I think that soccer and the way that I tackled that, it was a I'm going for it. I'm doing it. You're also five and three. Five two. Oh shit. Yes. Five two. Five six in 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 my four <laughs> in inch your heels. <laughs> in my Jimmy shoes. Oh shoot, sorry. Did you, play, did you play in your Jimmy shoes? I did not oh. play in Jimmy shoes. Oh, she would have killed it if she did. <laughs> but I could run in heels, so can you I wouldn't doubt that I I can play. Yes, that's a good one. But that good is one, interesting. Even just your size, mm-hmm. I think, is an important part sure. of your story. Mm-hmm. And I loved how you said that this is a central theme in my life. Is I have to claim my spot. Correct. Yeah, like, you're little, right. and and you are also like you were. You were the person that 90 seconds left in a game, we go to Kubi. And I call you Kubi. Yes, you <laughs> right? call me Kubi. And you tap into that reserve. Mm-hmm. And you're that person that's going to score mm-hmm. that winning goal, right? And you're that person that's going to figure out a way to to score that goal, right? Absolutely. Why right. is that mentality important to have? Why is that an attitude important for people to have when they're trying to go after their goals? Well, it is important. And I'll touch on why it's important, Yeah, at least for me. Yeah. Uh, but I know exactly where that mentality comes from. And I think for me, my dad has really inspired me. And I almost made a promise to myself when I was young that if he made such a sacrifice for me, I need to make it and whatever I decide to do, I need to do it because that was a sacrifice. What he did was that was altogether too much for me not to take advantage of every opportunity that I have now. So I think for me, it's always just been in there. I have to do it. I have to do great. And why is it important? I I don't know that I can do it any other way. 
How do you do anything any other way <laughs> except for I want it, I want it super bad and I'm going to work for it and I'm going to do it and I'm going to get it done. And yeah, no, yeah, yeah no, I, I, I think that, you know, I don't know any other way to do something. And, and it's funny that you say that it's like, it even comes down to ordering a coffee. Uh, but that's because it's a lifestyle, right? So it's not, oh, I'm, today I'm going to pick and choose. I'm going to go really hard. It's kind of, you just, you just kind of are that person that just goes hard and reaching into the reserves. Like you mentioned, I, I had a trial this summer and it was a two week trial and I had about 15 witnesses and I wasn't sleeping. I was so stressed. I was waking up two, three in the morning, thinking about my issues and all of that. Right. I was so tired. I wasn't feeling well. I wasn't eating. You would never know it because I'm presenting like 110. I'm presenting like I don't have, this is it. This is it. This is that championship game. This is what I've worked for. And so that mentality is just, you know, it just exists in every part. I, I don't know how to not be that way. Um, I was always very curious because I, I come from immigrant parents as well. And I'm, I'm always, um, I, I wanted to, before we started this podcast, I was actually looking to develop uh, a podcast and really interview first generation children and their adaptation of what their parents came with mm -hmm. and then their own uh, kind of investment or their, their own psyche as being someone who was born here and taking on the culture that exists here without but not having, but having a direct lineage to mm -hmm. the suffrage, the immigration, the the journey, the, the you know the, that that type of lifestyle as well, right? Whereas you're getting into your second, uh, your third, fourth, fifth generation kids who know the stories but didn't live mm -hmm. with it, right? Correct. And so I think you know everything you're talking about in regards to soccer and being a you know a you know, I, I, I fall in that same category where I grew up as a leader. And I think that, and I'm, I'm curious to get your perception on the DNA makeup of a first generation mm. that was born into a family of the journey, mm. right? And what it took to get here, right? What, what would you say are some of the attributes growing up, if you can pinpoint just the culture at home, the identity that you guys grew up with, uh, because I think it all stems to everything you're talking about. I, I really appreciate that question. And as you were speaking, I was thinking about my childhood. And I think that my parents coming from a third world country, coming from El Salvador and limited opportunities, they come to this country, which is really interesting now that I'm thinking about it, but they come to this country with this refreshing energy of you can do it all, mm. right? You can do anything. In fact, you have so many opportunities. And so for me, when I was younger, that's all I heard mm. is that I can do anything. And how powerful is that? Absolutely. Right. I mean, that is power. Mm. When your parent is looking at you, you can do it. You can, I mean, that is constantly what I heard, especially mm. from my dad, but my mom as well. You can do it. Why can't you? They didn't know, but here are, here's the struggle, 
right, as a, as a first generation, is that they just didn't know how to get me there. Mm-hmm. So you can do it all. We just don't know how to get you there, but you can do it all. So it leaves you in this very inspired mode. But how do I get there? So here's, here's, right? my, here's my take on that, right? Mm-hmm. They might not have given or had a recipe of how to get you there, but they indirectly knew how to get you there, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, that that's, I think, and there's more value from a learning experience in that regard because it does challenge your mind to adapt to your environments and learn on your own. But at the same time, they, again, indirectly and unconsequentially mm-hmm. created the environment so that you get to that point. Absolutely. Right, because I mean, I, I, you know, my parents, I mean, as much as they grilled down and, and raised me the best that they could and all these wonderful things, they didn't have a map road of a road map of how to, you know, become successful in this life. And they just knew how to survive. Mm-hmm. And I think, especially in the chaotic world that we live in now, survival of the fittest mm-hmm. is the key to success, right? It's being right. able to grind it out when you have no sleep, when you have no food, when you're stressing out. Mm-hmm. It's like, there's no excuses. There's no BS that's gonna stop you, right? right. Um, so again, it's an indirect kind of roadmap on how to become successful without them even knowing about it. Absolutely. And I'm gonna come at it from a different angle mm-hmm. because I mean, yes and, mm-hmm. right? Because there's this feeling that's going on in our culture, right? Where there is so much workaholism and there's so much hyper productivity and it's can be incredible to achieve your goals, right? You might become a millionaire, you might become the DA, right? You might own all your companies, right? And then you struggle with being able to connect with your family. You struggle with ever being able to take a break or you struggle with anxiety or like, what if I do something wrong, what's gonna happen? Like, if I don't do this perfectly, what's going to happen? And I think it's important to speak to that too, right? Because it's like, how do we balance both? How do I give everything 100% and not persecute myself if I didn't give it all my, or if I made a mistake? Mm, A lot of grace. (laughs) And that's something I'm learning. Yeah. It is. It's something that I'm learning. A lot of grace. I I think, you know, because we do have that mentality of that go-getter 100%, it's impossible. You're not perfect. And so it is a lot of grace and it's taking that time, taking that time out. You know, for me, I feel like I work, 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 work for better, for worse, right? Work, 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 and then deplete myself. And then I'm like a phoenix, right? I mean, I, I like burn to ashes <laughs> and then I'm like, oh, well, I'm here. I'm burned. So yeah. I need to relax. And then I do. And then I kind of come back up. But I think that's I think that's so beautiful how you described it for people that are listening. Right. It's like, okay, it's let yourself burn sometimes. Mm -hmm. Like for me personally, how I show up in that is I really lean on my connections and my friendships. You're one of them. Right. So the other day on Saturday, I'm exhausted as a single mom. Mm -hmm. My kid is having a really hard time in the moment. He's screaming. I'm driving. I'm working 11 hour days. Right. I'm going on a little safe. I can't exercise right now because I'm overcoming concussions. So my normal outlet is not available. Right. So then I go to your house and I just park in front of the driveway and we just have a conversation about the struggles that we're going through. And just that releases that serotonin, releases that oxytocin. And I, and I got energy after that. Mm -hmm. Right. So how often do you take those breaks Mm -hmm. and reach out when you need help, when you need that support? 
Often. I, I, I do have a child, right? So I have a two-year-old. So I'm busy. I'm busy with full-time job, you know, full-time wife, full-time mom, and um, family and friend, right? Um, what I have started to do, and this is in the last couple of years, is meditate and take a moment to myself and just sit in quiet, which is very difficult for somebody who's go, go, go to do. Um, just last night, doing some breath work, uh, just staying in that moment, being present in that moment. So I've started doing that, and that's been incredibly helpful for me. And so I fall asleep to it and just kind of relax. But I also work out. I also reach out to friends. I, I mean, you're one of the friends that I reach out to when I'm struggling with something. I'm not feeling well. Uh, but yeah, I think that there's something about community and community at work even, right? So, I mean, sometimes you just need a vent. Uh, you know, we're reading police reports every day. We're reading uh, people's most horrendous days, right? So you're taking on that secondhand trauma and then well, you need an outlet. So I go right next door uh, to, you know, one of my buddies. Hey, how's it going? Just laugh about something. I think laughter is also, what an incredible medicine. Mm. Laughter. It's the best. It's the it's best. The best. I the love best. laughing and I love <laughs> making people crying. laughing. Laughing and crying. And orgasming. I, I, yeah. it's the same, no, I'm serious. the same thing that goes on in our nervous system. Right. Here we go. Talking about yeah, sex I again. Have, I had to bring it up, but go. it's true. It's important. But I mean, there's something so... You know, that's that's the beauty of the first generation, right? Just tying it back into that where our previous, our parents wouldn't have said anything. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't have complained to anybody. No. They wouldn't have done breath works. They wouldn't have done no. yoga. They would, you know, they would have either hit the bottle or watch TV or lash out in anger or whatever it is, but they wouldn't know how to express themselves. And it's like us <laughs> having that connection to, whatever you want to call it, right? Self-care, foofy care, whatever it is. But in the end of the day, like there is a balance between managing the go, 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 and at the same time taking care of yourself so that you can do that, mm -hmm. right? And you can continue doing that. Do you ever find yourself that you go through periods where it's about your success journey and it's about your accomplishments and then you get to a certain point where you're like, you know what, let me take a step back and let me focus on like family and just my own life, personal life. Do you ever you have that dance back and forth or is it always? Oh yes, I, I think that there is a dance. I mean, I think when you're focusing, my dad always said this too, you know, everything in moderation mm -hmm. and every, the, you must have that balance. And so I think that I fluctuate between, you know, focusing, it's impossible to focus on multiple things 100%, right? Oh, so you're, yeah inevitably going to give yourself more to, you know, something mm -hmm. more than the other. Mm -hmm. So when I feel well, I'm too, especially when I'm doing a trial, right? So I give a hundred percent to that trial. And then what happens to my family mm -hmm. when that two week trial that I told you about, I don't remember a thing about my two year old, those two weeks. Mm -hmm. I don't remember anything about my husband those two weeks. So what happens there? So I think what I've learned is after a trial like that, or after I've, it's, um, I need to take a couple of days to recharge and to gather myself again. And so I like to think that I'm practicing my ability to balance or to get to know myself. And I think that comes with experience. I think that comes with age. I think that comes with personal growth. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, but just reflecting on that and just 
acknowledging that that is what you're doing. Mm. So when I'm going 100% here, let me go ahead and, um, you know, come back to my family a bit. So recognizing that you're doing that. I think recognizing it. And I think also when you're truly present, Mm -hmm. you can accomplish anything, right? If I'm truly present in this conversation with you, I'm going to give 100% because I'm present here, right? And then I can go home and be 100% present with my kid, put my phone down, right? Mm -hmm. I feel like presence is the answer. Mm -hmm. And then we have to do certain things to create that presence in our body, in my Mm -hmm. ability to just be here and listen to what you're saying rather than like checking my phone and checking an email and mm-hmm. like figuring out what my to-do list is. Like that's the daily mm-hmm. battle is I think constantly checking ourselves is like we're these busy people, we're these busy parents and we want to live the best possible lives we can and life's hard. Mm-hmm. So it's like those little moments of checking myself. Like when mm-hmm. my kid is trying to talk to me, do not look at the phone and I've seen you. Right. Like I've seen that you do that with your kid. You don't you're not on the phone. Right. And I think for people listening, it's like, what are the little. So for you personally. Right. Mm -hmm. Like when you're at home. Mm -hmm. Right. And you're with your kid. Are you looking (laughs) at your cases? Right. No. So, no, I don't. I do. I do separate the two. And I think that's important. Right. I don't take work home. I, I really do mentally check out. One one thing, I mean, I have a long drive, so I'm driving about an hour. So I have that hour to check out. Tesla driving. Exactly. Yeah. We're, we're checking out. Do you like the self-driving feature? Uh, I don't do the self-driving feature. I do not. Yeah. I know. Do you? I know. I just no, can't. I, wish I, 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 I think it's I had the, the option, and then they tripled the price. And okay. I, was, I, think oh. it's the, I think it's the control in me, right? Yes. So it's, I just, I'd rather not. Yeah. But I love, I love Tesla. We love Tesla. I love Tesla. <laughs> I love Tesla. And Elon loves that you love Tesla. No, I'm sure he does. I'm sure. I'm sure he does. But it's a great car. So back to what we were just kind of talking about, because it's it's mm-hmm. it's really speaking to prioritizing mm-hmm. and compartmentalizing and not taking work home. You know, I did have something on, you know, presence. Right. I think the thing with being present, it's beautiful. Right. You capture it. You're there. It's exhausting. It's. <laughs> That's the problem with being present. And it's very it's like, pressuring. I got to be honest with you. Yes. I feel pressured when I need to, when I, ha- when I know that I have to be present, like, me like, too. like shit, they're judging me if I'm not. <laughs> right. right. And right. so I agree. <laughs> Thank it's you for exhausting. saying that. Well, it's mentally well, exhausting. Att- like yeah. I can speak for my, my attention span is two seconds. Zero. I, I, I Correct. And it, it's not right. necessarily <laughs> me being on my phone. Right. It, my thoughts Travel. can be in million different directions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, like, <laughs> it's so funny. Like my wife and I, we were sitting last night just having a conversation. She was telling me a story about this husband and his wife. Mm-hmm. I wasn't doing anything, but I missed a point in the right. beginning of the story right. that tied it all together. Right. And I asked the question 10 minutes in and she's like, every time. You're not listening. You're, and, and I'm like, fuck, like, I, I, like, and I feel guilty, right. okay? the pressure to pay attention to that one detail that tied it all together. And again, no electronics, no, nothing else. Right. It's very difficult. I love it that you said difficult. that. It is. It's exhausting. That's the problem with it. And that's why I'm exhausted after a trial. 
because if I'm not thinking and I'm just kind of thinking about something else, my mind is relaxed. Right. But because I need to listen to everything so that defense details. attorney is saying yeah. and everything the witness is saying, I'm exhausted. It's the same thing with my kid, right? When I get home, I have to be fully present. I At least I feel like I do. I am on my phone sometimes. I mean, that that's that happens. Maybe you haven't seen me on my phone. It's probably because you're also around and I want to, you know, uh, socialize with you too. Uh, but I think it's, you know, I'm not perfect by any means. And I think that we need that. But again, it goes back to grace. And um, when I am on my phone, I do check myself. Okay, wait a minute. I should be spending some time with Robbie. So let me go ahead and, you know get on all fours and, and, you know, play with him and interact with him and be present, but it is exhausting. I completely agree. I want to, I want to shift to your uh, professional side of things. Yeah. Um, if we don't mind, I, it, it takes a certain, certain personality to become an attorney, right? Mm -hmm. But it takes a, a, a different personality to go into the public sector of, uh, of that field, right? Because sure. when you're growing up, your parents are telling you doctor, attorney, mm -hmm. right? And, mm -hmm. and, and the primary reason is financial, right? Mm -hmm. And, and right. security, of course, but primarily financial security. And a lot of people, they go to the firm. I have a lot of attorney friends. They all make very good money, mm -hmm. but half of them aren't happy. That's a different conversation. Right. What led you, first of all, to want to become an attorney? Was this like a, a goal as a child and you just saw that as a vision? Is this something that you adapted into? And then why'd you choose the public sector and specifically the DA's office? So I love that you're taking up, notes on that. that I know. Such I a, got it. I, I, love I, it. I can't get no, away from good it. For you. Right. Well, I want to answer both questions and it's <laughs> yes, twofold, right? Yes, why yes. attorney? Why prosecution? Yeah. And uh well, attorney. So you're right. I think when you're growing up, your parents, I mean, my parents always say, you can do anything. You could be an attorney, you could be a doctor, you could be anything. And those are the ones they, they, they started they, with. They start with, right? <laughs> <laughs> and they end with, right? Yes. I, it doesn't go, there's this nothing like else. Plumber, actually. you know, right. electrician. <laughs> right. No. Nothing wrong with those professions, no. right. uh, you know. Right. But. I mean, even astronaut. They never mentioned that, you know, yeah. or I, Jackson wants to be an astronaut. Good for him. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, he'll be an that's astronaut. Awesome. He yeah. will be. Go ahead. Sorry. Fantastic. <laughs> He would look fantastic in a suit. This kid is, un he's unreal. He's unreal. He's unreal. Okay, go back. All right. ADHD. Same. So I think that, yeah, you always heard that, right? Yeah. Uh, but it didn't become a, a very serious thought, I think, until I was reaching the end of my soccer career. Mm -hmm. Okay? And that was in college. And so now my entire goal for, God, no pun intended, right? My entire goal for my childhood and, you know, adolescent years and uh, as I became a, a young adult was to play soccer. And so once I realized, okay, this journey is kind of ending here, you know, I only have maybe a couple years left of, of college ball, what am I going to do? What's next? Uh, I took inventory of the classes that I was really enjoying. And I was at this point majoring in philosophy and philosophy, there was a lot of argument, a lot of public speaking, and I was like, oh, kind of like this. And um, I think it was there that maybe I could go to law school, maybe I could do something like that. And so I took a year off from after college, I graduated college with my degree in philosophy, I took a year to work at a law firm to see if that was something that I, I wanted to do. And it was during that time that I remember talking to Rachel, which is just wild to think about. 
uh, and I said, hey, I really want to, you know, I really want to go to law school. I just, but it's that, it's that, can I do it? Can I, can I do, the, can I really do this? Can I go to law school and, and, and make it happen for myself? And you were just like, absolutely. Yes, go do it. And so, uh, so I think it just stemmed from, you know, in interest, I knew that I have that go-getter attitude and it was something I wanted to do. When it came to prosecution, I didn't know that I wanted to be a prosecutor until I was in law school. I think that I never, I think initially when I went to law school, I thought I'd be in, in the civil world and doing civil uh, law. Mm. I had worked at a civil firm beforehand and you know, I thought that was interesting and contract work and that sort of thing. And now in contract work was interesting to you. It was interesting, <laughs> right? That's amazing. It, it, it is. And it is. And, and now, especially now when I think of who I am now and how I am in the courtroom, it's, yeah. I belong in a courtroom. Yeah. I don't belong anywhere there, else. There's a, a really clear distinction between courtroom attorneys and like right. paperwork attorneys. Absolutely. Like the two different personalities right. sure, from what I've seen right. gathered from you know. Right. Yeah. And you know, when I talk about like, okay, like contract work and that sort of thing, it was interesting in that, you know, it, it was interesting and it was challenging, but I knew that I was also going to be making money and I, I was interested in that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so I thought, okay, this is what I'm going to do. Uh, and it wasn't until I got to law school and I worked at the city attorneys of San Diego and they prosecute uh, misdemeanor crimes in San Diego, uh, San Diego city attorney's office. And then they also have a civil side. Uh, so there I started kind of getting some experience. I was prosecuting domestic violence, which is now, which is what I do now. And, um, and then I just got what I call the prosecutor bug. And I felt, wow, this is, in fact, it was when I was doing domestic violence at the city attorney's office. It's kind of wild to think about now because it's full circle for me uh, in this moment. You're seeing someone full circle right now. But I remember thinking, I was doing domestic violence and there was not one prosecutor, one city attorney, one prosecutor uh, that could speak Spanish in the domestic violence unit. Wow. And this is in downtown San Diego yeah. with a large Latin population yeah. and no Spanish speaking. And so I was doing the Spanish speaking on their behalf and I thought, okay, I love being in a courtroom. I love public, public speaking. I feel very comfortable with that. I love law. That's, you know, I knew that. And I could help a lot of people if I do this. Mm. And it is an underrepresented population. There should be a prosecutor that can speak Spanish. And so it kind of just changed from there. And now it's interesting, but you know, I, I'm, I'm in the domestic violence family protection unit and uh, I use my Spanish all the time. And I can't tell you how much it means to my victims mm. to have I pick up the phone and they answer, hola, bueno. Mm. And I can just write back, soy la abogada fiscal. And mm. they, it's, you can just, you can sense it in the phone and I can almost visualize it. It's like, okay, I'm speaking to someone who's speaking my language mm -hmm. and is going to let me know what, what happens from here on out. So, I feel like a guard is dropped in that sense, right? Because like on their on their side of it, uh, on the victim side of it, because they don't have to worry about you understanding their emotion or their pain that because there's there's an inherent uh, connection through language sure. that is, you know, sometimes misrepresented if you don't understand it right. And mm -hmm. and 
the fact that you guys, ha that you have that connection with your, I guess, with the clients mm -hmm. or with the individuals, you kind of skip 10 steps to get mm -hmm. to where you need to get to just because of that. So that that's beautiful. Right. That's it's amazing. an automatic connection. Right. I agree. I think that it's, um, you know, we don't experience that because we live here and people mm -hmm. speak English. But if you travel to somewhere where, you know, no one speaks English and all of a sudden someone's like, hey, how's it going? That's, that's home. Mm -hmm. So I'm in a lot of ways a piece of home mm. in the criminal justice system for the Latino community. That's amazing. I'm just like, sorry, I, I got lost in just that conversation that you had with that person on the phone. Cause I, mm -hmm. I have just so much empathy for people and, and, and mm -hmm. like to imagine that someone finally feels heard just because you speak the language and you don't have to, yeah. I mean, I can't imagine like I'm, I'm, I'm fighting for my family. I'm fighting for, you know, to fix something, a mistake that I've made and, and someone doesn't speak my language. I mean, right. It's so hard. Gosh, imagine it, right? You're in a different country. Someone's stalking you, right? Someone is stalking you and the prosecutor can't speak your language. You can't communicate with that prosecutor what you need to, what you need them to know. And then all of a sudden that prosecutor is speaking English to you. It's big time. Mm. It is. And so I know that I'm, I'm really big on, <clears throat> I want to be used. I have these talents. I have this language. I want to be used for the better good, for the greater good. How can I be utilized? How can I be of service? And I think that that's, that's, it's a heart of service. I think at the end of the day, I think that's why I'm not in a, uh, in the private sector. And I could be of service in a different way. Why did you choose prosecution instead of defense? That's a very good question. And I always answer it the same way. And, you know, I don't know if, you know, other prosecutors would agree or other defense attorneys. Uh, when I have mentioned it to other prosecutors or other defense attorneys, they, they agree. Uh, but I think that it's something you feel in your heart. So it might be based on life and where life has taken you. For me, I, I like to do an analogy of um, a sports analogy. Mm. So, and I've said this multiple times, I've said this so many times, uh, the prosecutor is the pitcher, okay? Mm -hmm. And the defense attorney is the catcher. Mm -hmm. I, as the pitcher, can control where that ball goes. So if I want justice, real justice, mm -hmm. balanced justice, mm. I have that ball. Great analogy. Right? I'm pitching it. All the defense attorney is going to do is catch whatever I throw. They will call the play, though. <laughs> True. Yes. <laughs> sorry, yes. Sorry yes. to bust the analogy. That, no, no, no. But yes, they'll call the play. Right. No, that's you're, fair. You're yes. 100% correct. But it's, though. you know, yeah. I think there's something about, I think both sides in speaking to defense attorneys, they want the same thing. It's justice right. and I want justice. And so we both want the same thing. It just looks differently. Mm. And so for them, they feel that, you know, justice is best served in the way that they are doing it. And for me, if I want justice, it's going to start at the inception because I'm getting that police report right then and there, mm. right? I get to decide, am I filing charges? And if I am filing charges, what charges am I filing? And after that, if he pleads guilty, contributing to 
what sentencing might look like. So there's so much power. Mm. Do you find that um, the burden of proof is more on the prosecutor or the, the defense? So now if we're speaking legally, there is no burden of proof on the defense, right? So the defense, they don't need to do anything, anything. at all anything at you all. You guys got to come up right? with Right. So we yeah. have the burden of proof. Right. Uh, if they choose to, if the defense chooses to put on a defense, that is totally up to them. Uh, but it is the burden on the prosecution to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. Why is justice so important to you? Mm That's such a good question. And I think I think justice means something to everybody. I don't think you're gonna find a person that says, oh, I'm not about justice or I'm not about fairness. I think we, we there's something in us that we just recognize when something is not fair mm. and when something is not just and when something's not right. So I think, I think we all do it, right? We all have that in us. Uh, I think that I have just found something that I'm very passionate about, and that's protecting people, protecting people uh, from crime, protecting my victims, but also being of service and doing some good. Do you think people deserve second chances? Yes, of course, mm. yes. And, uh, you know, it, but, you know, it, it, it depends on what we're talking about, right? And second chances might not look like what you think second chances look like, right? So, it, it's, uh, you know, in my personal life, right? I think that we need to set boundaries, right? I give people second chance, but then, you know, they prove themselves to you that maybe it's not a good relationship or it's not something that's good for you, then, well, you need to set a boundary. Mm. Uh, in my work, I'm, I'm bound by the laws, mm. right? Someone commits a crime, well, I can't just, you know, on my own accord, afford a second opportunity. And if by, by second opportunity, that means dismissal or otherwise, you know, so I am bounded by the laws and by my office. It, 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 it's, I feel like it's a, in a sense, a safe haven to some degree that you are bound by the laws. And it, it's a, it's kind of a beautiful thing because from a safeguarding standpoint, because in my industry, you're there, <laughs> trying to phrase it in the right way, there's a moral compass and there is, you have to look at it objectively from every situation, right? Mm -hmm. Like you'll have, we've had clients that had a history of DV or criminal mm -hmm. backgrounds, or, you know, you're dealing with drugs, you're dealing with alcohol. I got to look at it in a sense of like, what was the upbringing of this mm -hmm. individual sure. that created this behavior mm -hmm. in the first place, mm -hmm. right? Or what's their history and background? So right. I have to be somewhat impartial in that mm -hmm. sense, where, whereas the law can't be. The law is pretty clear cut, right? It's not gonna mm -hmm. ask you how your daddy raised you and stuff right. like that, right? It is what it is. How often do you, as the prosecutor, find yourself in those dilemmas and situations knowing that somebody's upbringing might have been really harsh and has created this environment for mm -hmm. this individual? There's some room and some discretion yeah. with how we negotiate and settle a case. Mm -hmm. And I do like to think that I take a holistic look at what it is, so long as it's being offered to me by the defense. Right. So if the defense provides me mitigation is what we call it. Uh, so a little bit more background on the defendant, their client. I consider that. 
Mm. And I consider that and I think about ways, how can we, now it's not every situation. I mean, we're, we're talking, let's say it's a first time criminal offense and, you know, it, it, now we're talking, it's one, that's one case, right? Sure. And then, you know, there are other cases, well, it's repeated behavior and at this point, what do we do? Right. Uh, so let's take, you know, a, a very simple case, uh, maybe a domestic violence and, um, you know, there's some mitigation. Yeah, of course, I'll consider that. We'll talk about it. I'll take, you know, into consideration what the defense thinks would be appropriate. Uh, at the end of the day, with some cases, not others, but with some cases, you know, I'm thinking, well, how can we make this situation better? What does that look like? Mm. And so it's it's very interesting uh, being in this, I almost call it, I almost see it as the end of something, right? Because once you're in the criminal justice system, you know, there's the laws require something, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. they're going to require some type of punishment. And so it's an interesting time. Mm. I'm meeting people at a very interesting time. <clears throat> you're meeting, excuse me, you're meeting people. Either at, somewhere, in, the, somewhere in that line. Right, yeah. somewhere in that line. And yet I think there is such beauty in taking radical responsibility for mm -hmm. one's choices and behaviors. And right. I think there's such power in being accountable to one's behaviors. And sometimes that requires mm -hmm. hard punishment. And I think mm -hmm. whether that's going to jail or whether that's going to a rehab center or whether that's paying a parking ticket or going to AA meetings because you got a DUI, whatever that is, there's power and freedom and liberation in one's own soul to do what's mm -hmm. right to take, and that's what we teach our children. I mean, right. I remember having this conversation with my son recently, you know, he has a contemplation consequence corner, right? For when he does some behavior that's not okay, I say, hey, you need to go in the consequence contemplation corner and think about why this behavior is not okay, right? And mm -hmm. so he goes in the corner, he comes out and I have him explain to me why that behavior wasn't okay. And then I explain to him, you know, buddy, when you become an adult, mm -hmm. consequences look a little different and you can go to jail, mm -hmm. right? <clears throat> you can go to jail. If you don't follow the rules, this is what life looks like. And I prepare him for that. And I don't mm -hmm. think a lot of children were raised mm -hmm. that way, mm -hmm. right? They weren't taught, okay, like I need to learn how to take responsibility. I need to learn how to own my shit, own my behaviors, right? Mm -hmm. So, but I think what makes you different though is, is like you really care about people. You know, I it's do. like you watch all these shows about attorneys mm -hmm. and people in the DA office and you're mm -hmm. like, they just like, people become numbers on a page, you care for what you're fighting for. I do. Yeah. Why do you I care do. about it so much? What do you want to, what do you want to create as a prosecutor? I think I just, I connect, I connect with people and I connect with stories and I, I never just want to do my job passively. I want to do it actively. And what does that look like? And it, it, and again, it just stems from my personality. Uh, so to the, <sighs> to the extent that I can, it's just being very present and like mindful in every case. It's hard to do, I have so many cases, but that's that's my goal. That's always my end goal, mm -hmm. right? So. Yeah, do you feel like the system is somewhat overloaded in the sense of like how many actual, and if you can't answer the mm -hmm. question, I understand that, but uh, how many cases that are out there mm -hmm. and what kind of support is given in a sense? 
mm. with, with, with everything, with the population that we have and how many people keep coming in and, mm. you know, cause I, and, and, I, and I'm saying this because, so my wife worked for the child and family center mm. in Pasadena. So she was a, an attorney and represented the children within mm -hmm. domestic violence cases or uh, abusive cases. And they had 50, I think it was 15 different law firms within the program. And there were probably 30 to 70 attorneys within each of them. And each attorney had over 250 cases. Mm -hmm. And that's just LA County. <laughs> right. So it's just, you have so many of these cases. And so how much adequate time and allocation does the system provide for this? Hmm. You know, I'll speak to my caseload. Mm -hmm and how I feel, I think that I can always use more time. Mm. And I can always, I wish that I had time to call every single victim, every single victim. Mm. I'm talking about at the inception when I'm reading and then I'm rejecting that case for proof issues. I wish that I can call every single, time might not allow it, mm. right? I have to run to court. I have to go to another hearing. I have to, so I think that, uh, you know, if you're doing your job wholeheartedly and with this passion and this drive that you're going to want to do, you're, want, you're going to want to provide a game, right? Mm -hmm. Your excellent work. Uh, but it is impossible when you do have so many cases yeah. and so much going on. Uh, so I, you know, it, it's difficult to say about, you know, each DA office and how they're allocating their resources. Uh, but I think that, you know, it will always be true that the smaller the caseload, the more attention you'll be able to give to each individual yeah. case. Yeah. I think it goes across anything, even Correct. even in treatment. I right. mean, the smaller the caseloads. Smaller the yeah. caseloads. You get to invest a little bit more. What's your what's what's your overall goal? Where do you where do you see yourself in the next five to ten years and in the journey of of either prosecution or just from community work? I think right now it's I love what I do so much mm. and I'm, I'm present in this moment. I think looking forward, I just want to know, I want to, I want to make sure that I'm still a person of service mm. and that I'm still someone that people can count on mm. and that I'm still doing good and contributing to my community. So whatever that might look like in the future, I don't know, but for now I know that that's what I'm doing and I just hope that I continue doing that. Yeah. Well, with a winner's mentality, usually you want bigger, better, badder. And so I hope nothing but the best for you. Thank I'm sure you it's so going to happen. So. Okay, final question. If you, and I call her Kubi because that's what I grew up with. But can, can we get some backstory to Kubi? Because Kubi asked. Kobe? Oh. Kubi, oh, oh. <laughs> I get that. I get why you're thinking that. <laughs> I thought Kobe. <laughs> she grew up as Stephanie Kubias. And okay. then so on the field, it was always Kubi, Kubi, Kubi. Yeah. Kubi. <laughs> Pass the ball. <laughs> Use your left foot. Use your left foot. Okay, anyway. Um, <laughs> but um, to all young women all, all around the country, all around the world, who are wanting to pursue their dreams, who feel like it's impossible, who come from families where they have money, families where they don't have money, what do you, what do you say to them? What message do you want them to hear? Do it. Just do it. Whatever you think. Nike plug. 
just <laughs> I wish I was wearing Nike. Phil, Ni- Phil Knight is like, hell yeah. Yes, that's it. Stephanie Horlick, like, you got it. Just do it. Just do it. No, really. Just yeah. do it. And you'll figure it out on your way. But just do it. You want it? Just go out there. Get it. And and I think that that's, that's been the little voice in my head that's gotten me to where I'm at. Nothing else Right. And and I think talking to people, building those relationships, if someone offers you something, take it. Mm. You know, someone offers you, hey, come and have a hey, come do a podcast today. Mm. Yes, queen. You know, no. as nervous as you are, as scared as you might be. This is you nervous. I can't imagine I, <laughs> how you'd be if you were right, nervous. Right. You know, whatever it is, whatever fears you have. Do it. You just don't know. And and you're gonna land somewhere. Mm-hmm. It's gonna take you somewhere. And so I think that, you know, for you know, the we'll call them the little Stephanies in the world, the young Stephanies, right, that had these dreams and goals, just go out there, just do it, put yourself out there. And because if you don't, it's never gonna happen. And what about when they wanna give up or if they're going through like a lull or if they're not seeing results quickly, what do you like, what do you say to them? What do you like? Cause I feel like I go through that sometimes too. You know, what do you say to someone who like wants to give up? Don't. Right. Don't you do just it. don't. <laughs> you just don't. It's simple. You just Chin don't. Up. Chin up. Do not <laughs> give yourself a moment, but do not. That's, that's what you want. Yeah. That's it's yours. I just have to share one last story because I feel like this speaks to who you are, right? I, I recently I was about to I just got off the and I'll just I speak personal about my life all the time, so whatever. I'm in the middle of a di- I'm in the middle of a, of a divorce and I am about to sign these papers, right? And I got off a call with my attorney and I, I was in one business meeting and then I had to speak to this attorney. I was I went to the bathroom because I got emotional and I got sad. I was like, shit, it's like this is it, right? And I'm crying and in that moment you call me mm-hmm. and. I answer the call and you're like, are you crying right now? And I was like, yeah, I'm crying. Why are you crying right now? Well, I just got phone with my attorney and like divorce is about to happen. You're like, and I'm about to go to this business meeting and I got to like chin up, <laughs> chin up. You know, it's like no matter what you're going through, even if it's hard and painful, like chin up, like you got this, like get your shit together and do what you got to do. And I did. Yes. Pick right? yourself up, girl. We're doing this. Did, Let's did, go. Did you say thanks, Captain? Yes. Yes. Oh, I, I, she I did. did. She did uh, say thanks, Captain. I and then did. we hung up and, and I texted her, Chen, <laughs> I, girl, you got this. And that's what it's about, right? Yeah. It's like, you know, sometimes you do need a buddy to pick you up. But at the end of the day, pick yourself up. Love that. Oh, we're ending on that. That was mm. good. Uh, well, thank you. I love you. I appreciate everything you said today. So inspiring and motivating. Um, and thank you everyone who listened to this episode. We appreciate you. Uh, come back next week and just fucking do it. Like, just do it. If there's anything else you learned today, like just do it, go after your goals, go after your dreams. Like nothing is too big and we'll see you next week. Thanks everyone. Thank you so much. Thanks.